Welcome to the Business of Experience. I'm your host, Rodney Hobbs. Thank you for joining me today in the podcast series that explores everything to do with experience. Okay, everybody, welcome to another exciting episode of the Business of Experience. And I'm super excited this week to introduce to this episode Alan Hulkins, uh, author of Cracking the Leadership Code. Welcome, Alan. Thanks so much, Rodney. I'm really excited to be here with you today. No, it's fantastic to have your time. And uh, really, like all my episodes, because obviously things are COVID, um, probably a good place to start first for the people that might not be so aware of your wonderful book and your other work and experience. Can you give us a little bit of an intro? Sure. I mean, in a nutshell, what I do is I help high achieving people become high achieving leaders, which obviously in the state of the world is uh, easier said than done because leadership is is harder than it looks. I've been doing that for just about 25 years now, working primarily in North America. I'm American by birth. I actually live in Europe right now. I'm in the Netherlands while we're recording this, but I have been working overall you know, with I, something like 2,000 different groups and 42 of the Fortune 100 companies. So have what I found was that there's just patterns of behavior. I've always been fascinated by why do people do what they do? And you see patterns in organizations. You know, great leaders have certain things in common. Mediocre leaders have certain things in common. And I wanted to figure out what those things were. And through just repetition and pattern recognition and writing stories down, I started to see that there were certain central themes coming out. And that's what my work has always been about. And that's what fascinates me. And other than that, before I got into this, I actually trained as a professional actor, went to drama school in, for graduate program. So part look, looking at the human condition is something that has been a part of my life ever since I was young. Fantastic. Well, obviously a breadth of experience that you bring to the table and a wonderful book. And obviously, and really, the purpose of this week's episode is to discuss kind of all things leadership, which obviously is a very important ingredient when we talk about all things to do with experience, the future of work and transformation. So, um, you know, I'm really excited to explore a couple of key concepts. I think before we dive into the big topic of leadership, um, obviously, we can't deny we're living in a very interesting and unprecedented time. And certainly, as I uh, speak to you today from Melbourne, We're back in a lockdown, stage three, and maybe even on the brink of stage four. What insights or what have you sort of gleaned from this very interesting and unprecedented start to 2020? Wow, what a great question, Rodney. For me, you know, it's interesting. A friend of mine that I work with said to me, you know, I'm jealous of the coronavirus, which I thought was a very strange thing to say. I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, we work with trying to help change behavior and change culture. And sometimes it takes years and years and it's really hard, difficult work. And this coronavirus comes in and changes culture and behavior overnight, Uh, which to me, I think, you know, obviously it's a huge pandemic. It's a huge crisis. And the silver lining in this is there's this opportunity where I think this has given us all a collective wake up call. If we listen to it of, first of all, on a personal level, taking a look at our values, like why do I do what I do? Because we've had to press pause on the collective treadmill and think about 
how we do what we do, why we do it, the bigger purpose and meaning, because this virus has the implications of life and death. I think people are dealing with bigger questions and stopping and going, really, what really matters to me? And not only are we doing that on the personal level, we're doing that at the organizational level too, rethinking how we do everything because we can't do things in the old way. So these kind of wake-up calls give us this incredible impetus for transformation if we look at them. And so for me, there are some people who are embracing that, and then there are some people who are just floundering in the middle of that. And so to me, that is, in a nutshell, the biggest area of opportunity to look at is the, the sense of meaning and purpose and how we're going to change based on that. No, I would agree. I think from all of the discussions I've had, I, I, I was really optimistic that this obviously has been a great catalyst for a lot of things to happen. I probably could be a little skeptical to think that that catalyst has been somewhat spent rolling out technology and where we've created the verb, you know, a Zoom. And I think we're now at the end of the kind of fatigue of some of that in the sense that you used to just be stuck in meetings. You're now just stuck in meetings, but you're stuck in meetings at home. Uh, So I think my contention was, or my hope at least, was that we seize the opportunity to redesign work and we stop talking about remote work as if remote is important. It's the work that's important, not where you are, which you know, is kind of, uh, I still don't think a lot of people have embraced that. I think a lot of people have just enabled things from moving from A to B. I would totally agree. And what we're seeing, and I know I've talked with clients and, and others that I coach around this, is for people who were uncomfortable with empowerment, they're just that much more uncomfortable with it now because what do you mean I can't look over my people's shoulder and see what's going on? Because like you were saying about redesigning work, so many people still think of work as this thing that you go and put your time in, which is such an industrial age mindset, right? Like I just got to put in a bunch of hours towards something as opposed to what an opportunity to rethink, redesign work where how are your employees much more like consultants and giving them clear scope on here's the deliverable and now how you do it's up to you. I'm here to support you in that. You know, a lot of people have been moving in that direction before. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the idea of the results only work environment. And this is a great opportunity to recognize what we're about is the work. We're about the results. We're not about making sure everyone's doing everything in exactly the same way because we're not working in a factory. At least 95% of us are not working in a factory. So that's why there's this opportunity. And, And as you say, whether or not people shift to redesigning, more people are comfortable staying the same, but just like you said, going from meeting to Zoom meeting, just imprinting, calling it remote work as opposed to let's just get to what are we really trying to accomplish and why is that important? No, exactly. And I think that leads us probably right into the, you know, let's tackle the elephant in the room about leadership because I think COVID is presenting an amazing opportunity. And I think we've seen some great examples of leadership. And I think we've seen some poor examples possibly of leadership because Some people are managing the situation and some people are leading. So one of the key things I think for us to kick off with, Alain, would be 
What are some of the common assumptions then that people make about leadership that kind of get us into trouble? Yeah, great question. So one of the so assumptions come from our beliefs and our mindsets. And I think one of the biggest ones is that people who are in formal leadership roles get drunk on power. I mean, frankly, I mean, they get intoxicated with this sense of I'm in charge. My job is to tell you what to do, which is a very old world, we'll call it Taylor industrial age mindset, whereas that was based on a factory industrial age mindset and model where basically labor or employees were manual laborers who were basically asked to do the consistent, I'm on the factory assembly line doing a widget day in, day out, and don't think. In fact, Henry Ford famously said of his employees, why is it every time I want a pair of hands, they come with a brain attached? And so this first sense of that my job is to command and control, that's completely the wrong mindset, especially today with all of the turbulence going on. So that's one of the biggest assumptions about leadership that get people into trouble. I'd say an, another area that really is, is a challenge for people is they think that everything needs to come from them to others. So they see their role as the keeper of knowledge, the keeper of wisdom, and somehow they're going to dole it out in little bits to other people. Again, leadership shouldn't be, you shouldn't be the commander in chief. You need to be more the facilitator in chief. And that's about creating an environment where we're moving information from where it is to where it needs to be. And not just moving information, but translating that into insight so people can make great decisions to create effective results. So to me, this mindset paradigm really keeps a lot of leaders stuck in an ineffective place. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, if you look at some of the data that's around, and obviously, you know, I think one data for this region here in Australia was 86% of people are, are sort of unhappy. Now they're unhappy generally with work, if you like, which kind of leads back to that other thing to how did we get to this point where so much of the employees, if we like, have such a low confidence in their leaders because leadership and communication and obviously, we look to our leaders to communicate that purpose and meaning and direction and strategy. Yet, I'm sure you know just as much as my experience that year after year, every survey that ever came back, people never felt that they were being communicated to. They understood where things were going, which I think was an important crisis of where there was a gap in the leadership. And that comes back to this point about confidence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, the fact you bring up this, this the, the data around maybe in Australia, 86% of people being unhappy. In my research, kind of globally, I found some interesting s studies um, that are all fairly equivalent. One, one is around the issue of trust is that less than half of employees globally trust their employers. So that's less than half. That's about 49%. And only about 31% of people believe their leaders communicate well. And only 23% believe their leaders lead well overall. And as we dig into that, and, and that number, by the way, hasn't changed for years. It's, it's been that pretty low. So the question to me is, how can that be so shockingly low and not change? Well, it's interesting is all of those survey instruments that find out that the numbers are so low those surveys are anonymous. There are no real world implications. You know, for you to be honest on a survey like that, because it's anonymous, you know, you can speak truthfully. Whereas in a workplace setting, unless that leader has created 
a, a place of psychological safety. And I know you spoke with Amy Edmondson a few weeks back. Um, unless we have that safety, then people aren't going to speak up and be honest about it. And so the low confidence, I don't know if it has gotten lower. I just think that a lot of leaders don't create a space where people can be honest. And the other mitigating factor in this too is that as people in life, forget just employees, but in society in general, our expectations of everything to have continue to go up and up and up. We want more and expect more as consumers and as employees. You know, we talk about the business of experience. We want our experiences to be more frictionless. We all know what one click means because of Amazon. Well, we want a one click world. That's our ideal. And so every time that our leaders disappoint us with stupid processes and frustrating meetings and just boring days and just stupid work just creates the sense of why I'm unhappy here. And so what do, what are we doing as leaders to create an experience where employees are engaged, uh, inspired and motivated and, and feel like they're making progress towards something that matters? And that is, you know, that really takes the work, I call them leadership architects. And I think the word you use design is such a powerful one because we really do have to redesign work so that we can meet the expectations that 21st century employees and people have. Yeah, look, I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think as we were discussing sort of off, off microphone, you know, Amy's, you know, thoughts and insights were, were invaluable. And, and my other discussion with John Hagel you know, I just believe that we're trapped in a in the wrong operating system that we've inherited from the last industrial revolution that was designed largely to get everyone to do things in one way, Taylorism, the Henry Ford type comments. And ultimately, as, as work evolved through the mid-century into manipulating information, the technology there to do that was people and really to be honest, to me, that was really the birth of, of more, to me, the office. And now mm-hmm. when we look at the 21st century, as we see this velocity of innovation and, and change and transformation and the consumerization and the, just this revolution of technology at our disposal in our personal lives, and then we go to work and we're trapped in this wrong operating system that's still trying to control things in such mm-hmm. a way that we're bogged down as if we're still on the factory floor, but we're not. And as you rightly say, we want a lot more. We demand a lot more. And that's this, what I think is more fundamental about this movement to recognize and use this word experience and, and things like emotional intelligence. And, and in, you know, there's lots of different ingredients, but ultimately I think it's about how do we start recognizing that everyone in some ways, has a unique experience as they touch these these intersections with the organization. And the balance of that is what I expect and what the organization expects is what we've got to create as a new operating system. And leadership is what's required now to set that direction. And I don't believe too much in strategy anymore. I talk about navigating with a compass because I think we've just got to pick a direction and head that way and have a far more haptic, iterative feedback, working with people, creating that network and ecosystem. 
You're enjoying another wonderful episode of the Business of Experience. I'm your host, Rodney Hobbs. And if you and your organization want to redesign work and drive experience, please reach out at rodneyhobbs.com. Now let's get back to the show. I love that. I love what you said about that sense of letting go of strategy, because the great thing today is we have the technology and the tools to be so much more responsive and sensitive to what's coming into the environment so that we can adjust and react and respond and shift in so much more real time than this old school idea of here's our five-year plan. Let's just continue along with that. And it's interesting too, because you spoke about this sense of leaders and having to navigate through this. And, and, and while every single person is unique and wants their own experience underneath the uniqueness, there are certain overarching or underpinning, whichever way you want to look at it, themes. So for example, we know that people do better when they're in a psychologically safe environment. We know that people do better when the environment is energizing as opposed to you know, draining of their energy. We know that people do better when they have autonomy and ownership over their work. We know that people do better when they have a clear sense of purpose. So for me, these become the four primary tools. And yet then as a design, as a leadership architect who designs an environment, you need to then customize and tailor each of using those four fundamental needs differently for different people. But underneath that, so this means that we as leaders have to have a much greater interest, frankly, in people and in psychology, psychology than has ever been expected in the past because we could get away with, I mean, if we look just generationally, you know, I work with people across all the generations, you know, and the, the value equation with boomers and Generation X somewhat, but definitely not so much anymore. When we started in the workplace, when Boomers as Gen X started, was basically keep your nose clean, shut up, do what you're told, and just keep working away and work for those many years. And then maybe you'll be lucky and get a gold watch when you retire and get a pension. And that's what work was. That's not the value proposition anymore. And yeah. so we, we need to have shifted and people just won't put up with lousy leadership. We have great technology tools like LinkedIn and Glassdoor and people know like, look, if this is a mediocre experience, I can easily go and check out on the internet with LinkedIn and Glassdoor. I can see where the grass is greener. And frankly, I'll trade this mediocre experience for another one with the opportunity for maybe 10 or 15% more money because why wouldn't I? Otherwise, you know, mediocre is mediocre. And so what is the compelling thing that is going to keep you here? It's going to be your leadership creating an environment or the call it the culture that makes the difference. I mean, Gallup did some great studies years ago and they found that 70% of the variance between lousy, good and great culture is directly attributable to your immediate leader. So leaders don't just make a difference. They actually, they are the difference. Absolutely. I think you've, probably in that answered a couple of the, the key points I wanted to touch on about why emotional intelligence and why this empathy that we've been talking about with other people is such an important ingredient. I think you've, you've explained very nicely why they are important. I suppose the key part around that is what are some of the challenges then to developing a more empathetic and, and creating this safety? Because I think particularly when I was discussing this with Amy, 
I don't think anybody would disagree and understand the value of, of enabling everyone to be their best self and feel free to be able to show up and say what you think. And, and I know for a fact that so many people would be nodding, but then, you know, kind of shaking their head that there's no way that's the world that they live in because they, you know, I come from the generation where, you know, if you stuck your head up, you got it knocked off. That yeah. was, you know, that was not a safe environment. That was a CLM, a career limiting move. Exactly. And I still believe there's more of that than there is the kind of kumbaya type moment where everybody's having a hug and able to really share openly what they think. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so great question. So this idea of we all agree. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. And like, just like everyone says, we want our people to be innovative. We want them to have great ideas. But are you creating a culture that supports that? Or do you shoot things down, call them ideas, idea assassinations, you know, which is very common. We've all seen it. We all know it. So I think for me, I, I first of all, I want to start by kind of this quick definition on empathy. So for me, I define empathy as showing people that you understand them and care how they feel which again, sounds very kumbaya and everyone goes, yeah, I get it. I understand we're human. That's important. Fine. Yes. No one's going to debate that. That's important. So the question is, why doesn't it happen more often? Right. That's, that's the big issue is why, why don't, why aren't people good at it? Um, and so there's a few th- core themes that come out time and time again. And to me, one of the biggest is if you think showing people that you understand them and care how they feel, isn't some item that you can just check off of your to-do list. So Showing empathy takes time. And yes, information technology and emails can travel at the speed of light, but human relationships sometimes take some time and they're not linear. They can be messy and there are layers you have to get through. Anyone who's ever been in a relationship with anyone else knows what that's like. So showing empathy means taking patience. And in our business worlds, especially patience is in such short supply, right? We have results to deliver. In fact, in a lot of organizations, driving for results is framed as a core competency or bias for action. And yeah, there, you need to have a bias for action in some things, but part of leadership wisdom is knowing when do you go fast and when do you slow down. And when it comes to building relationships and empathy, you need to slow down sometimes. So I think that is one of the biggest areas that people have an issue with. Another big issue, I think, frankly, a lot of people who are in leadership roles, when it comes to caring how people feel, are very uncomfortable with the idea of feelings in the workplace. You know, I always remember I was working with a guy, his name's Bob. He's a managing partner at a consulting firm. And he, I appreciated his honesty because he said, yeah, you know, I don't ask my people how they feel. And you want to know why? Because if I ask them, they might tell me. <laughs> I, I don't want to know. You know, it's the sense that, that somehow asking people how they're actually doing is this Pandora's box that somehow actually some, suddenly I'm going to be thrown into the role of being the psychologist when no, you don't actually have to be a trained psychologist. You just need to be an empathic human. That can you, and that's a skill set that a lot of people don't have skilled in. They're not skilled in. And so are you actually okay with people expressing how they feel? And what the research has found is when people can actually express how they feel, it calms their central nervous system down and it lets that energy shift so they can actually then focus on the work itself. Because if we don't give that kind of psychological safe space, then people are stuck in this 
fear uncertain place, their nervous system can't relax, and then they're not able to focus and perform at their best. So there's reasons behind it that are actually business performance reasons. It's not just, oh, we want people to feel good because that someone told me it's the right thing to do. So those are a couple of the big reasons. Another third one I'll say is just power. The fact we talked about this earlier is that when people step into roles that involve power, their levels of empathy go down. There's been great research done where they put people into functional MRI machines and they've induced powerful states and they've found that the centers that light up the brain diminish. So this is something to watch for. It's not that you can't overcome it, but naturally, it's, you've heard the expression, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And there's some truth to that. So we have to be aware of that when we're in these roles that we are taking on certain archetypes and certain projections from other people as well as from ourselves. So I'd say those three between impatience and power and the fear of people expressing their feelings, those are three of the big issues around expressing empathy in the workplace. No, that's fantastic. And I, I think it's also interesting. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I like to say I'm a Gen X elder. And, uh-huh. you know, I, I I don't think there was anything particularly wrong with the way that, you know, over the last 25 years, my career and what you learned. But, you know, there were certain things that you learned from the environment. And then with so many of these different ideas, and it's not that I don't care about what people feel or whatever else, but I think one of the real challenges that I sense is that I think it's really hard for some of us to change. And it's because we've been conditioned in a way and it just takes more effort to be able to, I suppose, adapt. And I don't think everybody, I think there's kind of this blanket assumption that, you know, just because now we've got to be this, that, and something else, that everybody can just and a flicker switch and automatically be okay at everything. And I don't, I don't think that's the real world. I think there's a lot of people that really suck uh, because they're not really people, people, you know what I mean? And then yeah. there's some people that are just very naturally far more well positioned to be empathetic, you know, just in their demeanor, their body language, their, their tone, just there's a whole bunch of things. And I think sometimes some people are, wrongly you know kind of square peg round hole because they're just not well suited to move into where what their role might now need to to adapt to and for does that make sense makes complete sense and 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 i think there's a lot of people who are in these leadership roles who may not have those people skills that are going but wait a minute i've been in this role for 15 years it was fine 10 15 years ago why are you saying this isn't fine now like doesn't doesn't seem fair and it's not fair um you know i've seen numerous studies that have said like the number one skill that is most needed right now is you can call it ability to you know lifelong learning or you call it growth mindset but this sense of adaptability and 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 recognizing that we're in this world where because so many things look everything that can ultimately be automated or algorithmatized i think that's a word uh, (laughs) everything is have either has been or will be and so that means what is left in terms of the work what becomes left is it's all this human interaction stuff to make sure that people are able to oversee all of those automated processes, et cetera, using technology in its best way. 
And so our ability to draw out of people and work with people so that we can harness the power of technology has become that much more important. And yeah, there are a lot of people are in these roles who, like you said, suck at them. And this is the shift. And it's and and the thing is, a lot of them may suck at them in organizations that, you know, if you look at the P&Ls and the balance sheets, they seem to be doing okay. And so the question is, are the organ and, and people can look at that and say, but I'm successful. And so now the question is, are you successful because of those skills or in spite of those skills? And so this is the challenge. And ultimately, and I see this with coaching clients too, I believe that unless you are willing to be coached and change, you are not going to. I mean, we, like you said, we are hugely resistant as a species to change. And I think the only thing more resistant to change than a person is a company, right? Because we institutionalize things to keep things stuck. So unless particularly senior leaders say we need to embrace this and they start modeling this, you're going to stay pretty stuck as a both person and as a culture. You know, a great example of change is, and this is pretty well documented in the business press, is Sachin Nadella came in at Microsoft and basically changed the who was Steve Ballmer was was the CEO before, and Microsoft was filled with high charging ego driven people. And on for his first meeting with his executive team, Sachin Nadella came in and gave everyone a copy of nonviolent communication. Um, which is more less less of a book and more of a way of thinking. And he has very much adopted Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset. And they have a big saying at Microsoft now is, don't be a know-it-all, be a learn-it-all. And he has really shifted the culture around people being much more curious and empathetic and has learned that you can train people, but that has taken a serious effort from the top, top person at the organization to make that shift. So is it possible? Yes. Is it hard? Yes. So that's, that's probably where I'll leave it for now. No, that's fantastic. And so I suppose following on from that, I mean, what are some of the small things that leaders can do then to sort of develop, you know, trust and loyalty and commitment and start, I suppose, changing maybe for them their style in the sense of bridging and negating some of the challenges that we've discussed? Yeah. So great. Yeah. So simple tools. So we think about trust. To me, there's two sides to trust. There's what we'll call the competence-based trust. Like I know you're a good, like you're a hardworking, diligent person based on your track record. So there's competence-based trust. And then there's what we'll call the vulnerability-based trust. Your willingness to be open, to admit mistakes, to say, I don't know. I don't, how does this work? Um, so two different strategies uh, on the competence-based trust side. I think one thing that as leaders we need to understand is that we are always being watched. A lot of leaders don't get this, but the fact is you are under a microscope. People are, and everything you do becomes larger than life. So number one is how are you to build trust? What are you doing to strengthen your credibility, not from yourself, but in the eyes of the people that you lead? And there are some simple tools that you can do to start to build the credibility. Number one, most important thing, and it's super easy, is start showing up on time to anything you say you're going to be at. You have a meeting at nine o'clock, be there, be on time. Because every single time you don't do that, it sends a very clear message that something else is more important than your people. So that's the first, that's the kind of the, the, we'll call that the crawl step. And then after crawling, you want to walk, do what you say you're going to do, right? So this goes beyond just being on time. It's with everything, just being really mindful and aware 
Are you conscious of what your agreements and commitments are? And are you following through? Are you someone who can be counted upon? Because when you do that, people go, ah, you know, um, we know that you're okay. And so that's number two. And then the third step is to be consistent with these, both of these numbers, one and two, over time. And that builds your credibility track record over time. So that's some things you can do on the credibility-based, competence-based trust side. On the vulnerability side, very much empathy. And so the question is, everyone says, okay, I want to be empathetic. How do I do that? Number one thing you can do is listen with purpose, which is different than listening to respond or listening, I have an answer that's prepackaged. It's being willing to park your own agenda, which means parking your own ego and parking your own got to get through this, putting that to the side and really listening, being open, being that learn it all, being curious as to understanding the perspective of someone else and understanding not just the intellectual perspective, but what's the emotion that's driving this because emotion is what drives behavior. It also what creates new habits. So I'd say listening with purpose is the number one thing you can do on that side. So you've got credibility, you've got vulnerability, looking at those two things will, if you start working at these specific behaviors, you'll be in good shape to start developing and becoming a more connected and more effective leader. No, such great insights. So one of the other things we've talked a lot about in our our time, which is rapidly going on, is communication, obviously, right? So um, what do you see as maybe three of the major obstacles to communicating well? and, And I suppose, what are some things that we can do to overcome those? Sure. Oh, this is, a, this is a big, juicy question. I love it. Um, so, yeah, communication is oftentimes ranked as one of the biggest challenges at work. And, and it's interesting because it's one of these things like a utility. I think we don't notice it until it stops working, right? Oh, the internet's not working. Well, I can't do anything. Same thing with communication. It's like, it all seems like it's working until it's not. Say there's a f- probably three big challenges to effectively communicating well. First is the fact that communication is just a lot harder than we take it to be. We take it for granted in that for it to actually be effective, and I define effective as the goal of communication isn't communication. The goal of communication is accurate shared understanding. But to get to shared understanding, there's three things that need to be aligned, which oftentimes aren't. What do you mean is one. What do you say is two. And what do I hear is three, right? So you may mean something, but say something different. And I might hear something entirely different. So for us to get understanding, we need to be aligned between what you mean, what you say, and what I hear. So that's number one, is getting alignment. Second thing that is a huge challenge to communication is lack of context. So in your mind, what you mean is crystal clear. You have 24-7 access to what you mean. You have the context. You have the history. This is all crystal clear in your mind. But have you painted a picture that frames the communication within that context? If you don't put it in that context, I'm going to miss something. And so number two is, are we having a lack of context? And the third huge challenge to communication is just overload. The fact is we're all bombarded with the amount of information that we're dealing with. I saw this great study that showed like in the 1970s, the average executive dealt with about a thousand external communications a year. If you break that down, that works out to less than four a day. 
four a day, right? This is back in the days when your inbox was an actual box on your desk. <laughs> Today, that number is well over 30,000 a year. So, and you think about all the different channels that we deal with, right? We've got email, voicemail, text, WhatsApp, FaceTime, right? Uh, you can get, you know, Slack, you can get um, Google Docs, Share Docs, SharePoint. I mean, there's so many different vehicles. So we are drowning in information, but we're starving for insight. So I'd say those are the three big challenges to communicating. Should we go into tools about how to deal with those? Because that, that's a lot of stuff. Like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, what are, what are just some of the great, what are the you know simple practices or maybe not so simple practices that allow us to start overcoming some of those points? You're enjoying another wonderful episode of The Business of Experience. I'm your host, Rodney Hobbs. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please ensure you subscribe, like, and share. Sure, sure. Yeah. So the first thing, I mean, and these aren't necessarily in a a priority order, but these these are all important. Uh, One is, first of all, when you're communicating, have an end goal in mind. You know, I know Stephen, one of Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people is begin with the end in mind. I think this works really well around communication. What is your goal? What are you trying to do with your communication? I think a lot of people, a lot of people in the busyness and the speed that we work at, we're just trying to kind of get things off of our list. Getting things off of our list is not a really good reason to do anything. You know, what's the reason behind the reason? So being really clear. Number two is use the principle of clarity and simplicity. So whatever you're saying, try to make it as simple as possible. We have this horrible, horrible habit in the business world where we feel this need to make everything sound very impressive. So instead of using words like use, we say utilize, right? Instead of saying make things better, we have to optimize. We add in extra syllables because it makes us sound smart and important and like we know what we're doing because we're these corporate professionals. Now, now I'm not saying make dumb things down. I'm saying make them simple. Same thing with our, uh, how many presentations we sit sit in an hour meeting and there's 90 slides. It's like, no, no one's going to absorb 90. Like, how do you take 90 and turn it into seven slides or whatever it is? Make things simpler. Put, you know, editing is a lot harder and more important than writing. So edit and make things clear. You should have a clear central message for everything you do. Um, that's another key thing. And I'll list another, th- a third one I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with here as well is n- as leaders know that the default setting for human communication is miscommun misunderstanding is that it's actually going to go awry. So build in checks to make sure that we're all on the same page. Again, we tend not to do this because we're all adults. We don't want to treat people like they're babies or like, Oh, everyone's, everyone's clear, right? That's what we say. And of course, no one speaks up. And then what do we do? We have those meetings after the meeting. What do we disagree to? What do we say? Who's doing what? So all of which to say is you should insert checks. And I, I call them asking for a receipt. So if you know you have a 60-minute meeting, 45 minutes in, you are finished with the content. And now the last 10 minutes or so, you then, okay, let's just go around. Let's confirm what have we agreed to? What have we decided who's doing what? And make sure we're on the same page. I know it seems redundant because we're supposed to all know this stuff, but it's going to save you a lot of headache down the road. So those are a few simple tools to use to help you to strengthen your ability to be a more effective communicator and a more effective leader. Fantastic. Uh, I think, you know, as I was listening to those, I mean, a lot of it, 
is common sense, right? It's, it's like we, we know this stuff, but we don't practice this stuff. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, a lot of people won't ask. Yes. So there is that misunderstanding. And, again, why don't we ask? Well, I think it goes back to that psychological safety because yeah. we don't want to yeah. feel stupid. We don't want to feel like yeah. we're the one that called something out or, you know, in some cultures it might be not showing the right level of respect. I just think we need a far more open way that we can work with each other that allows us to be the individuals that we are so that we can dispense with all of these things that don't serve any real purpose. They don't, they're not helping anybody achieve anything that they want, yet we're sort of somewhat caught up in that system of behaviour. Uh, and that's what fascinates me about some of the things that you've been saying. Um, so, Elaine, time is escaping us, and I think we need to, very importantly, before we end today's episode, probably cover two things. So the first one of those is, as the, the title's named, you know, experience. What does, I suppose, customer, which I don't necessarily focus on, but employee experience have to do with leadership? I'd like to kind of get that context nailed in in our chat today. Sure. So if we think about experience, I mean, and I love the idea of the business of experience because experience is such a subjective thing. And we all experience the world differently through our own senses and our own, our own experience, right? Our own lived history. So the employee experience is what is the story that your employees tell about their experience, their life at work and realizing that as leaders, we can, through design, very intentionally shape their experience and understanding there are certain moments and time periods that are more important than others to focus on to create a great employee experience. And I want to share an example that I learned. So when I was going through university, I was waiting tables uh, numerous, at numerous places, what I used to do. And if anyone who's waited tables knows this intuitively, probably, but not all minutes when you approach a table are the same. So for example, when someone sits down at a table, their expectations to be greeted, they expect to be greeted within 90 seconds by the time they sit down. Whereas after they finish a meal, you don't need to clear plates within 90 seconds, right? So those 90 seconds are not weighted equally. So I use that analogy because if we go back to work and think about, for example, the first day on the job, right? Just think about how heightened our experience and our impressions of what that means. So what are we doing as leaders to create such a wow and delightful experience of the first day? You could say the same of the hiring process. You know, what are things you're doing to create this? What are you giving people in terms of tools to set them up for success? So, you know, if you're familiar with the concept of design thinking, design thinking is all about starting with the customer's experience and going backwards. Well, let's use design thinking and retrofit, go through our employees and their experience and what their work life is like. What are things that would wow and delight them? What are things that would make things easier? What are things that would make them feel more connected? And so that is a very different approach than just going oh, I have a vacancy. You know, I need a systems analyst. Who Are you a systems analyst? Great, you're hired. Go to your cube. Someone will meet you with a new laptop on Monday. Right? This is such a different approach is really thinking through what are all the 
both objective and subjective measures that are going to create an experience that someone's going to be ready to show up and want to contribute to things. Because I believe we've all had this experience. It's, you know, we call it the first day on the job experience where, you know, our expectations, we are so, we're ready for a honeymoon. We would love to be wooed and delighted and and come away from that. And what tends to happen is we come in with these wonderfully high and engaging expectations and very quickly we get disappointed. And before you know it, day two, day three, and then, you know, sometimes goes by and then we just sort of settle and resign ourselves to a less than ideal experience. So this is, I think, an important aspect for leaders to think about what are we doing to design that experience. And I think going back to those fundamental um, palette, you know, those the, primary colors, if we think, we say safety, we talked about this earlier, safety, energy, ownership, and purpose. What are things that we can do that will enhance those human needs so that people can have a great employee experience? No, that's some, some great things. And you reminded me of a story I, I did start at a particular company. And for, for six weeks, there was a gentleman behind me and, uh, and there was a pile of boxes by his desk, like quite a you know, I'm talking like three, four foot high. Wow. And um, after a few weeks, I, I got to the point where I just said, um, what are those boxes? Because they were kind of like in the way, right? And he said, yeah. um, well, that's my IT stuff. But he said, but my computer hasn't turned up yet. So it was all the other bits except his computer. Yeah. And obviously my background is more technology and I think, there's no need for any of this, that the HR system doesn't talk to the procurement system or it's stuck with some approval. All of these things are really actually very simple to solve. Yet most organizations continue to have this idea that they design things where the arrow points out. So IT or HR or procurement, here's my process. This is how it works. Go to the portal, work it out. No one seems to design from the outside in. So what can the person do? How could that experience be consumed? A lot like a consumer experience where obviously one of the best examples is a kind of an Apple experience, right? Because right. you don't need to think it's simple. You know, I won't use the word intuitive, but it's frictionless. Yet yeah. all we do and all we continue to see, and I think it's becoming far more apparent, the frictionless experience is the Apple experience where it just works. It comes out of the box, it works, it does what you expect it to do, the light switch model, versus just these really clunky, out-of-date things which just aren't acceptable anymore. You can't just, it's kind of like have plumbing and just kind of go, well, that's the way it is. So you got to wait because someone didn't approve something. I think this generation is not going to accept that, and we already know with the skills gap and the talent war and all of these things. That's why I still believe, you know, and we discussed this, that mindset needs to change, no doubt. You know, mindset, not tool set. But we've yeah. got to change the operating system and we've got to recognize those moments you spoke about. And we've got to design. Because I like the word design because to me that's a deliberate thing. You've got to, someone's got to think about something and someone's deliberately got to do something to design something to work differently. And until we can start doing that and then working more in an adaptive system rather than just an engineered environment, that's to me when we start turning the corner about what the future of work is. So, Alan, I got off my soapbox then. Apologies. 
No worries. It's the great. The final thing, we're going to turn for home now and finish up. It's been wonderful having the opportunity for you to share some of your insights and, and obviously encourage everybody uh, to look more at your work and the videos and your TEDx speaks and your book, obviously. But what's something that we can offer the listeners today that are, that are here with us? What can they take away from our discussion today and put into practice around leadership? What will you offer everyone on the episode? Sure. So I think that, you know, we talked about experience being very subjective and humans are notoriously bad judges of ourselves. (laughs) So what I would suggest is if you're really serious about getting better as a leader, and frankly, as a person, because the two go hand in hand, is seek out feedback from other people who will give you honest, constructive, real feedback on both what you do well, as well as what you could do differently in the future to get better. For my take, that is the number one thing that will accelerate your growth if you're serious about it. And then taking that feedback and then applying it. You know, don't do a, just one person because you want more than a, a sample size of one, but you will see some consistent themes come out. And it's amazing how when five and six people start telling you, hey, Alain, you know, you tend to come across as bossy and a little driven in meetings. I have to go, hmm, six people. I guess maybe they're right. By the way, that's true. I did get that feedback. So, so that's something that I would suggest is seek out feedback. It's amazing. Even at the end of, and it doesn't have to be formal. Just, you know, at the end of a meeting, say, hey, is there anything I could have done differently there? Just, just starting to get into the habit of asking people for what their thoughts are. Um, it's, it's a way to also uh, let your guard down and create connection with people because suddenly you're talking about process and not just about the work itself. So asking for feedback is a huge thing to uh, create a better experience for you and the people around you. I think that's a great takeaway. And I think it, it plays back to communicating, right? Which is, is yeah. again, you know, it's, it's, it's understanding what people think and communicating and building that bridge, which is two way, not one way, which unfortunately is, probably what a lot of people think communicating is yeah. talking at people rather yeah. than, as you say, um, seeking that, that feedback. That's, that's a really great way for us to, to finish the episode. So Alan, thank you so much for making the time uh, available to join us on the business of experience. Uh, how do people connect with you, find out more about your great work and your book? Sure, buddy. So the, probably the easiest place to find me, because my name is spelled a little funny, is uh, the, the book has its own website, which is www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com. And that'll take you right to the book page. You can actually download the first chapter as a preview and get a taste of the book. That will connect you to my alainhunkins.com website, and you can learn all about the other work that I do. Obviously, I work with individuals, teams, and organizations, either as speaking, consulting, training, and coaching, all under the umbrella of helping people to become better leaders. And also feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn as well. And for those that have listened all the way till the end, you are now part of the end of the podcast club so that you can actually, if you have any questions, anything that's come up, you can email me directly, which is Alain, A-L-A-I-N at AlainHunkins.com. And I will answer every single email that I do receive. Well, there's a prize for people to get to the end of the <laughs> But Alain, as I said before, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure to have the time to chat with you today. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Rodney, it's been my pleasure. It's been a delight talking with you. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. 
for everyone, uh, again, thank you. And thank you for being on this episode of the Business of Experience. And as always, we'll catch you in the next one.